Good morning. On a little bulletin this morning, we uh, have a text from Romans chapter 8. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors over what is the great question, and the eighth chapter of Romans answers that for us. It is conquerors primarily over sin. That's what the eighth chapter addresses, the issue of victory over sin. And so I'd like for us this morning to look at the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, if you would. Victory over sin, that's the big desire, should be the great desire for the believer. And yet so often we don't live victorious Christian lives. Why? Because as this little verse again states, it's through him who loved us, and we tend to do it in the power of the flesh. Now let me just step back a little bit and take a look at the, or give a little outline of the book of uh, of, of Romans, <clears throat> Romans falls naturally falls into three sections. Chapter one through chapter eight is uh, primarily doctrinal in nature. The question is there that's raised is how does the gospel or how's the gospel applied to the sinner? Then in chapter nine through chapter eleven we have that midsection which is dispensational in nature, it deals with the question of how the gospel relates to the nation Israel. And then in chapter 11, or uh, chapter 12 through uh, chapter 16, we have the practical aspects of life. And there it is, how does the gospel relate to practice? To my walk, it's great to have the doctrines, the truths, but how, they, how do they apply in my life? Shoe leather Christianity. And so this eighth chapter is the last chapter of that first section. The preceding chapters, chapter six, for instance, the question was raised that if we are saved by grace, then in order to show God's, or, or to amplify before humanity God's grace, why not just live an unrighteous life? And Paul answers that very question in that chapter. In chapter seven, he presents himself in two different ways. There are two portraits of Paul in chapter seven. The chapter itself deals with the issue of law. How does law apply? So if, they, if a Christian is, not to, uh, is to live a godly life, then does he do so by applying the law? And so Paul gives us two portraits of himself, one as an unsaved man and then one as a saved man. He says, the law applied to the unsaved man applied to me when I was unsaved. All it did was condemn me. It showed my sin, and that's the purpose of the law. 
It showed who I am. And he says, all right, after I was saved, what about now? Shouldn't I live in obedience to the law? And so 27 times out of, in just a few verses, he raises this first personal pronoun, I, me, I. Let's look at some of the, I wasn't going to go there, but let's take a look at this. Uh, verse uh, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate to do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, and so on and so forth. He's saying, look, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. I want to be obedient to the law but I'm doing it in the power of my own flesh. I want to live for God. And that's what Paul is saying here. And many of us live this way. We try to live for God and we fail. We pick ourselves up and there we go again in the power of the flesh. Live for God and we fail. And our pattern oftentimes is a lifetime of attempt. Paul isn't saying here that I do the things uh, that I don't want to do in the sense of, uh, of um, wickedness. He's trying to live for God, but is failing. And we can't live for God in the flesh. And so he brings out these two portraits of himself. One is a natural man, and if you read the preceding verses to, to, to where we just started on the here, in fact, if you read from verse 7 through 13, you'd see multiple times the issue that relates to the natural man is sin, sin, sin. The law points out the sin. When it comes to the carnal Christian, a man that is a believer, but living as a natural man, attempting in the flesh to please God, it's I, 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 over and over again. And so for the one, the condemnation, uh, the, the law is condemns him. In the other, it shows him the weakness of the flesh and a, and a total loss of the flesh. So how, how then can we live for God? How can we live lives that are victorious? Well, chapter 8 addresses that. Now, before we look into that section, I think it would be worthwhile to... The, the chapter, chapter 8 is also broken into three parts. It starts off with the statements that there is no there is now no condemnation 
It, and, it ends with that there is no separation. And then in the middle, he addresses this issue of victory. But I think it's prudent for us to take a look at uh, both the opening and the closing section of this chapter. Remember, this chapter is the end of the first section. And so he starts off the, with, the, with, this, um, with this statement in the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This issue of condemnation, he's de dealing with it in a twofold way. You remember the initial chapter, uh, chapters of the book of Romans? There they are, man, all of humanity stands before the bar of God. The degenerate, the moralist, the religionist, all stand before the bar of God and all are found guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. All come under condemnation, all of humanity. Oh, but thank God there is that issue of justification, isn't there? And after justification, sanctification is brought out for us, justified by, through the work of the cross, and then sanctified, set apart for God. And so Paul is saying, based on the preceding seven chapters, there is no condemnation. In fact, I'd like to expand on that just a little bit more, this this whole little statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The, uh, the believer's deliverance from sin. Plainly stated fact, no condemnation. Do we grasp that? I was talking to a brother last night who says this was one of his favorite verses when he first got saved. And well, it ought to be for us as well. No condemnation. It's a logical conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation. Paul is making a logical conclusion based, as I said, on the preceding seven chapters. Not just blurting out a statement, but there it is, condemned justified, sanctified, and therefore there, now there is no condemnation. No condemnation. It is a present possession. There is therefore now no condemnation. Not down the road. Not when we're in the, we're in the presence of the Lord. This moment, at this time, at this juncture of your life, no condemnation. Can we grasp that? No condemnation whatsoever. It's a specific deliverance. Condemnation. Delivered from condemnation. Doesn't say that there's no persecution. It doesn't say that there is no accusation. Persecution from the world and accusation from the world. But accusation can come even from the believer, from the saints. How careful we need to be in that. No persecution, uh, uh, persecution, 
possibly, and accusations possibly, but no condemnation from God. It's an absolute conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation. I look at my life, perhaps you could look at yours. It's a storied life, isn't it? Bittersweet, how many times have I fallen? How many times have I been face to face with my sins and yet no condemnation? Wonderful thought, absolute conclusion. And then the latter part of this verse suggests that there's an inward experiential corroboration of this very fact. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There the Spirit of God within us gives evidence to the fact that there is no condemnation. He is the mark upon our lives that says we belong to God. And he moves within our spirits to make us aware of the fact that the condemnation for our sins was borne by the Lord and we're not going to bear it. Wonderful thought, isn't it? No condemnation. Now let's take a look at the latter part of this, uh, uh, this portion of, uh, of scripture. There is therefore now no separation Let me read just a few verses, beginning at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The believer's security here, no separation. Get with me in verse 38. Paul sets forth two alternatives. First, for I am persuaded that neither death or life, two two alternatives, death or life, can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither death nor life. Within the context here, he gives us the reason why. Look with me at um, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Why isn't death an element of separation for us? Why? Because Christ went into death conquered death, and death and Hades are now hanging on his belt, on his girdle. 
conquered death. And death is not going to separate us from him. Death is separation in a sense, isn't it? We had the memorial service, the funeral, and the memorial service of Ed Greenwood uh, here yesterday. Went into death. But it wasn't cessation. That death was simply a change of address. He's in the presence of the Lord. So death separates for a moment. But death for an unbeliever, what a terrible consequence that, that is. Separation for all of eternity from God. How what a fearful thing that should be to those that are outside of Christ. But we have no fear of death. Death is not going to separate us from Christ. Neither death nor life. In verse 35, he brings out seven, <clears throat> seven different situations of life that believers may find themselves under. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? None of that. There are believers today that are under this, these elements of life. Persecution. Tremendous, tremendous difficulties. We, unfortunately, the majority of us are not. But these is there any other element of life that can separate us from Christ? No. Why? Again, we go to verse 34. Um, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who has died, who has won the victory over death, and furthermore is also risen. We have a living Savior, a risen Savior. And we have that life. He is cons considers our life. And he is the power of life in us under every circumstance. The life of the risen Savior. We'll see, look, touch on that a little more um, as we get on into this uh, particular book. Then Paul moves from the practical realm of this earth to the spirit realm. Look what he says. Um, I am, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers are going to separate us. Angels, spirit beings... Bodiless beings, spirit beings, angels, principalities, a greater level of a spirit being, powers an even greater level of spirit beings. They can't separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Go back to verse 34 again. Who is even at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus is at the right hand of God. Far above principalities and powers. He's far above them. None of them are able to keep us from the love of Christ. Who can separate us from him. 
And then he presents again a couple of alternatives as to time. Nor things present, nor things to come. Not the things now, present, or things that are yet to come. Why? Again, if we would go back to verse 34, we would find that we have an intercessor. One that is there at every moment of time. He's always in the present, interceding on our behalf. Wonderful truth. He continues on to all two alternatives of dimension, neither height nor depth. Be the heavens or be it the, the, uh, the very abyss for us, God is there. None of that can separate us. And just in case, Paul adds through the Spirit of God, just in case there's some uncertainty about things that are yet future, he says, what? And any other creature or creation. Just in case something comes up down the road. You know, we're talking about new heavens and new earth in the book of Revelation. We're not sure yet of what events are beyond that. Is there going to be something else? Well, whatever it is, it's not going to undermine our relationship, our ongoing relationship with the Lord. Nothing, nothing at all can separate us from the Lord. Wonderful. No condemnation, no separation. But we come to this verse in, uh, in Romans that was the text on our, on our little brochure, verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we are conquerors, then there has to be conquest that suggests battle or warfare. You can't be a conqueror if there's not a battle, if there's not something to win over. And so here he's, I think Paul is bringing out this issue of conquest. It's really a compound word, only found here for the word overcomer. 28 times out of 26 verses in the New Testament, we find this word overcomer. And it's not an overcomer in our own power. We overcome through someone, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we overcome in this battle, this issue of battle. And if there is a battle, then there has to be an enemy. And who's the enemy? Well, the word of God is clear as to our enemy. The enemy is, of course, Satan. And the enemy is this world, not this earth, but this world, this world system of men that is government or entities of power that move in authority apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The world, the world system. And of course, that last one that so readily 
um, undermines me is myself, the flesh, the flesh in me. Perhaps you face that problem, but that is my greatest enemy, the flesh in me. Three enemies, but these three enemies, all of them, can be encapsulated in the idea of sin, can't they? And so the enemy is sin. Sin, whether it's directed by Satan, the appeal of Satan. Sin, whether it's the, the pomp of this world, the standards that are accepted and set before us as if we're on a platter as being worthy of grasping after sin, sin in the flesh, the appeal to the old nature, sin in the flesh. There's a provision for victory, of course. In John chapter 16, it clearly gives us the picture that it's the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Then there is the work of the Spirit of God in regeneration and indwelling. And of course, the application, the method of it is by faith on our part and by permitting the Spirit of God to move in our lives. That's the filling of the Spirit. We have no part in the indwelling of the Spirit. We have no part at all in the regenerating powers of the Spirit. We have no part in it. That's God's work. But we do have a part in being filled by the Spirit. That means giving up self. Giving up self to the Spirit of God, to the control of the Spirit of God. Victory. Victory. Now we have that in greater depth, beginning in verse 2. Here he presents the issue of law, and he sets before two laws, two separate laws. Let's read about it. I'll read verse 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law. Now we have the great, uh, we have the great subject of victory over sin presented for us. It is warfare. We do have an enemy. That enemy is sin presented in three areas, or three sub-enemies, if you would. How do we gain that victory? Paul presents two principles of action in, in the life of an individual. Two laws. Now, don't get confused here. Uh, when we read about law, it's not 
necessary Mosaic law. This is not Mosaic law. This is the law that God requires of human beings, moral requirements, to live a life that is righteous before God, the holy demands of God. And so there is a law. There are two laws that are here presented for us. Now, what is a law? A, a, a law is a sequence of cause and effect, and it operates with unswerving certainty. Be sure of it. And with a continuous Uniformity, there's no variance in it whatsoever. The law, or a law, is consistent as to time and effect. And Paul is saying here there are two laws that are warring against each other. There is the law of sin unto death, and there is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Let me see if I can give an illustration of it. If I take a, if I stand on a balcony and I take a marble and I reach over the banister and drop it down, what happens? Does it fly up? No. How many times do I have to drop it to perhaps have it fly up. Well, I can do it as many times as I want. I mean, it's going to do what? Gravity is going to pull on that, and the law of gravity acts on that marble where it's taken down. The law of sin always draws down to death, always. But the Spirit of God gives us life, the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus. I have a granddaughter that, had a, I don't know whether she still has them, but she had a couple of birds. If I took one of those birds and again went up to that high place and let go of that bird, what would happen? The law of gravity is still the same. Why is it that the bird flies? Because there is the life within that bird that is able to offset the gravity. It's consistent. If we give ourselves over to the Spirit of God, the, the law of sin does not draw on us. We overcome that. <coughs> and it's done consistently. It's not an inconsistent thing. Again, it's a law. Remember, it's a law. And so it operates with unswerving certainty. I could throw that, uh, take that marble and drop it a million times and a million times drop to the ground. But life in the spirit also is a certainty. If we give ourselves to the spirit of God, he will impart us with the risen life of Christ.
Christ to live that life for him. He goes on in verse 3. For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What is Paul saying here? Well, first of all, I think we have to kind of take a look at this issue of law again. The law cannot cleanse away guilt. And the law, being perfect, however, it cannot give the ability to keep its holy standard. There is no power in the law to keep, for us to keep that demand of the law. Do you see that? The law is holy. The problem isn't with the law here. The law is perfect. God's demands are righteous and perfect. But the law doesn't give us the power, the ability to meet its own demands. And so man, particularly in his flesh, uh, fleshly condition, attempting to do the law, to do what is righteous before the Lord falls flat on his face. God had to take care of that. How did he take care of it? Well, it's stated here for us. For what the law could not do in all, in that it was weak through the flesh, through the working in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. There it is. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary. He didn't die just for your sins alone and for mine. He died for the sins, but he also died for what we are by nature. The sin offering is perhaps... That word sin is a little misapplied to that offering. That offering doesn't deal with a trespass alone. That's a trespass offering. That also deals with the issue of who I am by nature. Now when the Lord went to the cross of Calvary and died on that cross, by virtue of that work, our sins were forgiven. But this old nature was never forgiven. It was condemned. Isn't that what it says? God, by sending his own son into the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And this old flesh is condemned. It was nailed to the cross of Calvary. Judgment has already been enacted against it, and yet it raises its head consistently, doesn't it? Why? Because the actual work of eradicating the flesh won't take place until we're in the presence of the Lord. You have a fellow that walks, 
that commits a murder is condemned, condemned to death. He goes into prison and he's on, prison, on death row for 15 years. He's already been condemned and after 15 years now he's taken and the, the, the actual requirement of that condemnation takes place where he's put to death. But he's alive during that period. It's like the old flesh, isn't it? It's condemned to death. And it's going to be taken care of down the road. But it shouldn't have power over us now. But oftentimes it does. And so it is by virtue of the Lord coming down and taking flesh upon himself. Not sinful flesh, it says in the likeness of sinful flesh. In him was no sin. He did no sin. He could not sin. But in the likeness of sinful flesh, he went to the cross and took care of the issue of what we are by nature. What we are by nature. And then in verse 4, let's take a look at that finally. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of law be fulfilled in those who live. How? In the power of the Holy Spirit. What are the righteous requirements of the law? What are the righteous requirements of the law? We take the Ten Commandments, we look at those and we break them down into just Ten Commandments. But if you take a closer look, they fall into two camps, do they not? The righteous acts towards God and the righteous acts towards man. All the law falls into those two brackets. And it's the Spirit of God that moves us to live a righteous life before God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to live righteously on behalf of man, deal with man in the righteous manner. All of that is fulfilled how? Through the Spirit of God. We could get into the details, the elements, uh, love your brother in this fashion or love your neighbor in this fashion. These are details. Love God in this manner, and we do have it in the Word of God. But principally, it, the, the broad general requirement of the law is towards God and towards man. And how are we able to live righteous lives, lives that are honoring to a Lord, glorifying to him, is by giving ourselves over to the leading of the Spirit of God. That's what we have here that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, capital S. Victory comes by giving up. Giving up self. to the Spirit of God, to his control. It's the only way 
I don't know how many years I would, went on and on and on and on and attempting to do it by myself, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, so to speak. Failed every time. And what happens? Guilt and condemnation from that guilt. I should be doing better, but I'm not. Are you there? Dear brothers and sisters, when we fall into that, remember there is victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over the world, victory even over this old flesh. But it comes through permitting the Spirit of God to work in and through us. May that be the purpose for this coming year the Lord tarries. May we live lives that are indeed victorious. Let's bow. Now, Father, we do thank Thee for Your loving kindness and grace. We thank Thee, Father, that it is a life that is lived out by, in the power of the Spirit of God, Father, that, that presents to the world the life of the risen Savior. Oh, we pray, Father, that that might be a reality in our lives, that we might not be simply be encumbered with sin and attempt to deal with it through the flesh, Father, but permit the Spirit of God to shine forth Christ in our lives. We thank Thee, Father, again for the truth of Thy Word. The law is the condemns the natural man. No one can stand up to its demands. The law has no power to give to the carnal man. And the law falls completely to a, a loss to, in, to be ineffective, Father, through the law, which is through the Spirit of God. May we live, Father, in the power of the Spirit of God for, for thy glory. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.